Moving to Live is a podcast about movement and exercise. We bring you interviews with professionals in the movement and exercise field. The goal is to provide information for other professionals and also amateur movement aficionados, people who understand that movement is part of what makes life complete. Some of the people we interview you will have heard of. They're well known in and outside of the movement and exercise profession. Others you may not have heard of, but they have a great deal of knowledge to share. Many people doing the best work spend their time working with people, not working on their social media presence. We're going to give you a chance to learn from some of these talented and knowledgeable individuals, and we're going to learn along with you. Moving to Live podcasts are going to be short. Each interview will be long enough to impart usable information, but short enough to be able to be consumed in a single bout, during your workout, commute, or even during dinner prep. We all like long-form interviews, but time is valuable. Moving to Live wants to give you the option to learn and be entertained without needing to commit 60 minutes at a time for an interview. Give Moving to Live a listen. Check out our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, which highlights people, businesses, events, and activities in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area that make movement a priority. Moving to Live would love to hear from you. Want to connect with us or have an idea for somebody you think we ought to interview? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com, or connect with us on Instagram and Twitter, both underscore mov2liv. We're excited to bring you these interviews, and we think you'll enjoy each and every one that we bring you. Welcome back to another episode of Moving to Live. As you heard of the intro, we're a podcast of move, about movement for movement and exercise professionals, amateur aficionados. The key for our podcast is we want people to think about movement as a lifestyle and not just an activity. My real goal for Moving to Live is twofold. First of all, I want to be able to talk to interesting people one-on-one so I can ask all the questions that I want to get answered. But number two, I want to break down knowledge silos in the movement field and talk to people with a wide variety of experiences and professions. I want to thank uh, Dr. Amy Bender for suggesting today's guest. And when I saw that he was living in Australia, had a military background, had done some work in mining before getting to his current area of expertise in sleep and sleep research, I knew this was somebody I really wanted to talk to. We're fortunate enough to be talking to Dr. Ian Dunnikin, who's the director of Melius Consulting. He also has his own podcast, which I'm sure he's going to talk about. And this is the great thing about podcasting. There's so many podcasts out there that until I looked him up and found out he had a podcast, I wasn't even aware of it. And I've got about eight or nine of his episodes that really interest me. So Dr. Dunnikin, thanks for joining Moving to Live for me this evening, for you tomorrow morning. Yes, we're here in the future. <laughs> and I guess we, we, should, we should start with uh, what I always start with is I ask every one of my Moving to Live guests, you meet somebody in the elevator, you're carrying the briefcase with the Amelius Consulting or the, the Sleep Performance uh, business that you have, and somebody says, what do you do? What's your elevator speech where you explain to people what the, what you do? Yeah, that gets longer and longer each time. But essentially, Ben, I do three things. Uh, I have Medias Consulting, which is a health safety improvement business, which I, um, I own and operate with a number of associates. Um, secondly, I have Sleep for Performance, which is a non-for-profit sort of platform to promote the message of sleep and performance that encompasses a website a podcast and a number of blogs as well that gets uh, published periodically and the podcast episodes come out 
roughly every two weeks. And the third thing I do is I'm a research fellow with University of Western Australia, where I work on research projects. And I also collaborate with other universities, such as Monash University uh, in Melbourne and with Murdoch here for PhD students. So uh, three big things, business, a kind of a promotion and research. And some people are going to listen to that and they're going to say that could probably, each one of those could be a separate job. It could be, yeah. <laughs> I wish I was getting three big pay packets, but I'm not. <laughs> so I contacted Dr. Dunnikin and I immediately embarrassed him myself within 30 seconds of interviewing him by calling him Australian. So let's set the record straight. I should have known better because I've also interviewed another Irishman for my podcast, Daniel Caulfield, who's the track and field and cross-country coach at California University of Pennsylvania. So for all Irishmen out there, I apologize for confusing the Irish accent with the Australian accent. At least I understood that both countries speak English. Well, I wouldn't mind if you were from the West Coast of America and you got that wrong, but you're an East Coast guy. And I thought you would have like, <laughs> you know, I've been around that area when I got up, but that's okay. I've been out of, been out of, Austria, uh, been out of Ireland, sorry, for like about 16 years. So, um, you know, my accent probably has softened somewhat or changed. Um, I often get mistaken from a, from a Canadian here in Australia, which is a bit weird. That's the latest one. So, um, yeah, that's okay. And I'm curious. I never, get, I, never I, I never get mistaken for Japanese. That's for sure. <laughs> I'm curious about your background. So you started out in Ireland, and one of the things about moving to live is we like to find out people's movement stories. So were you a kid? Did you hurl? Did you do uh, Gaelic football? What did you do? Uh, well, so when people say, did you hurl, that means, did you get sick? Did you vomit? No, no, I'm talking about that, Irish that, hurling, that, <laughs> that game. That game that <laughs> well, when I was a kid, I, yeah, I was pretty active. So I grew up in a, in a town in the middle of Ireland called Athlone, which is a uh, sort of a military and industrial town um, halfway between Dublin and Galway. Pretty active. Um, it was in the in the early 80s, so kids still played outside. There uh, wasn't many video games. So we, we, we did play outside a lot. We climbed trees, we jumped rocks, we fought, we threw sticks at one another, we chased each other. Um, there was all sorts of games going on. I always enjoyed being outside and being physical. Um, I struggled a lot, I suppose, from the age of probably four to 12 to find a sport. I, I tried uh, Gaelic football, not hurling. Um, I tried soccer. Um, you know, I tried every sort of game on uh, with the kids outside, you know, from tennis to whatever, um, handball to, you know, even pitch and putt, which is like a mini version of golf, I suppose. Um, but eventually, sort of at the age of 12, I found rugby, rugby union. And that's where I really kind of fell in love with the sport and uh, really dedicated my time from the age of probably 12 to about 24 uh, playing rugby. Um, and at one stage, I was playing for four different teams when I was 17. So I was really sort of crazy into rugby union as a teenager growing up. Um, fortunately, at the time, I was quite big for my age. I was five foot ten and weighed about probably 185. Now I'm five foot ten and we're about one sixty nine. So I'm like Benjamin Button as I as I get older I'm getting smaller. So it's a bit weird. Um so as you as you get older, obviously not having that mass reduced your success playing rugby. But I did find other things as I grew up. But essentially as a kid, I like to move around. Uh, rugby was my, my main thing in my teenage years. And I'm always curious with people when they specialize or they really fall in love with the sport, at what point did you realize it was over? I'm not going to go to the Olympics or I'm not going to play at a very, very high level, or maybe you played at a very high level and realized at some point, yeah, I can't do this anymore. 
Oh, I was probably around the edge of like 17 or 18. A lot of my, my peers were, so I started to start to change positions for me because I was obviously not keep, not, not gaining mass, um, like other people. Um, and then I started seeing people getting really big, like around me, like getting massive, you know, like, and, um, I was kind of generally losing weight, becoming a bit leaner as I got older. Um, and the more kind of activity I did and the more teams I played and the more kind of strength and conditioning work I did, the more body fat I probably started losing. Um, and so, yeah, I just, I knew I wasn't going to play at a very high level. It was going to be very difficult for me. Um, but in saying that, I, I spoke to a similar guy called Ian Pryor, who's the captain of a rugby team here on my podcast. And he he's very similar size to me. And, you know, he, he's a guy that graded it out and just kept on with his strength and conditioning and tried, kept gaining weight. And, you know, he's uh, ended up playing for Australia in their 20s. And, you know, I look at that story and I listen to him and I think, hmm, maybe. <laughs> maybe I should have just dug in and kept pushing, you know. But, um, you know, other other things happened for me and I, I don't regret it. So, um. So yeah, I'd say I kept playing at lower grades for another few years and I enjoyed rugby and still enjoy rugby. And um, it served me well because a number of my um, PhD research projects were actually in uh, elite super rugby. So it did help. And it gives a little bit of credence if you understand the sport and credibility for the players if you've actually played the sport. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I'm curious also about your educational background, because looking at it, you have had a fairly extensive career before getting into sleep research. And I think that probably goes in with the uh, Melius Consulting. What did you go to college for initially? Um, it's probably worth backing up a bit, Ben, before we talk about going to university or college. Um, uh, so you, you did other things before college? Yeah, <laughs> because um, I'm sure there's somebody out there that went to school with me or knew me or is a school teacher and is going, is this the same guy? Because, <laughs> you know, he, he wasn't that attentive in class. And it's true, like at school, like I really wasn't interested in, in sitting in a desk, uh, sitting at a desk learning. Um, that was the days of blackboards and teachers hitting you across the head. And I just wasn't really interested in it. It didn't really do much for me. And I was probably too busy playing rugby, had a part-time job. I was very cool at the age of 15. So, um, yeah, it didn't really suit me. So what, what happened was I left school early in the last year. I suppose you guys would call it like um, the graduation year, or the, the final high school year. I left early and I, I joined the military and joined infantry. And I really enjoyed that because it was very physical. It had rigor and discipline. Um, a lot of my members of my family had been in the military. But also I think like as an 18-year-old, um, you're looking for some responsibility as well. You want to be given that uh, probably... I don't know, that, that trust, and, and there's no better trust than being handed a rifle. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I'm, and, you know, I've been given those type of tasks, I mean, being treated like an adult. So very quickly, you go from being treated like a kid in class to a teacher hitting you in the head to within six months having a rifle. And, you know, I think it was very good for me. It instilled a lot of um, good leadership qualities into me, a lot of rigor, a lot of discipline, um, very good leadership training and, um, and training. So, yeah, um, I spent about five years in the, in the, in the military before I decided to go to university, um, in infantry. And, um, yeah, that was, that was quite interesting. And again, really helped me with my sort of physical training and movement as well. It's probably in the military where I really started getting into running a lot more. I found when I joined the military, I lost a lot of weight really quick again, probably went down to about 155 pounds, um, really got into running and probably excelled at, you know, having a good VO2 max and, and good aerobic capacity. I was always up the front in the groups running, um, probably not the best in terms of strength, but definitely an aerobic capacity could kind of had an engine to go all day, particularly around endurance, not so much speed. Um, so yeah, I, I 
I really enjoyed and, and really started getting to run in there. Was there any so, thought of was there any thought of making the military a career? Did you realize at some point in it, okay, this is a stepping stone to the next thing? I actually did. I was I was fully thinking about like this could be a career for life. But yeah, the Irish Army is quite small. Um, you know, and after five years, I felt like I wasn't being challenged enough. And and probably what didn't challenge me enough, being going in as an enlisted man, not an officer, was probably not the cognitive challenge. And um, and I just really wasn't getting challenged cognitively, and I was getting kind of frustrated. Um, so I left the military after five years and I knew I wanted to do something different. Initially, I wanted to go and study engineering. Um, but I met my wife, who was Australian, who was living in Ireland at the time. And um, we, I was thinking about doing engineering. But ultimately, we ended up kind of backpacking around Europe and Africa for a little while before we came back to Australia and settled here on the west coast of Australia in Perth. Um, but my undergraduate degree... Um, was done actually part-time living in a remote town in Western Australia. And my undergrad degree was actually in adult education. So uh, in trend, trend and development. So um, yeah, however, before I did that, I also did an associate's degree, which is called an advanced diploma here in Australia in occupational health and safety. Because at the time I was working for a mining company in their occupational health and safety um, training department. So a lot of people who are ex-military go into like health and safety, emergency management, emergency response, and training type roles. And it just seemed like the, the best avenue for me. Um, you know, my kind of interest in engineering had waned at that stage. And um, I thought this would be the best way for me to go forward and, and sort of capitalize on my existing skills and, and build a new career. And so that's why I, I kind of progressed with the associate's degree and then into the bachelor's degree in um, education. I'm curious, most of our listeners probably are not familiar with the mining industry. What exactly does a health and safety person do in those? Well, it changes, I think, in, in lots of different companies. So if we talk about probably what is mining, um, mining is basically a method of extraction of, of you know metals and minerals from the ground that's used in a whole host of things, from your iPhone to your car. Iron ore is used to make steel. You know, you get copper that's used in all your wires in your house. So it kind of it's a bit like oil. Um, it, everybody's going to be touched by some element of mining, regardless of what type of mineral or metal it is. Um, and you have underground mining and open cut mining. Um, underground, basically, as it says, is under the ground, and open cut just looks like a big pit or a quarry. Now, depending on the company, health and safety people do lots of different things. And the company I worked for. Um, it was the second biggest mining company in the world. So it was very much, had, had very good structures, very good management structures, very good sort of processes and players. So we were really like an advisory group uh, within the business. So we weren't walking around like a classic kind of, put your goggles on, tie up your boots, <laughs> putting down that shirt, putting up that shirt. We weren't, we weren't like that. So it wasn't like we were, you know, walking around twirling the baton and uh, shouting at people. We were very much systems orientated and quality orientated. So we worked... Um, you know, predominantly in those roles, um, advising management and leaders around implementation of the systems and standards for health and safety, and then helping them prepare for audits, review, improvement of those activities, um, supporting the leaders in communicating change to the employees or the work groups. Yeah, and that was quite interesting because um, my first job in that here in Australia uh, for a mining company was in a remote part of Western Australia uh, called the Pilbara region, which is a massive hub for iron ore. And um, we, we, I worked across the infrastructure division, which generated all the power, the water, and had all the housing as well. So quite a, quite a big area. And I'm curious, how do you go from an associate's degree in that to a degree in, 
I think you said adult education, which is a or yeah. some sort of education, which is a big switch. Well, the pathway would allow you sort of in Australia to have these framework pathways that lead from like, you know, sort of a base level, even school all the way through. And so one of the pathways you could take after that associate degree in um, occupational health and safety and training was to go and do this bachelor in um, adult education, training and development. So that's why it would it would kind of segue into that. So it wasn't like I jumped from one thing to the other, it actually segued into that that, that degree. And within that role of safety, as I was saying, there is a lot of training, development, communication. Um, and so it, it kind of did fit into the, to the overall goal of really what I wanted to do. So, yeah, That's, but there's more, there's more, there's more switches after that. I, so, I know that. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I think it's, uh, it, it's interesting how they, they have it set up for the associates to the bachelors, which is not typical what it is in the U.S., so I think oh, it's okay. interesting to see the different the different educational standards or the different educational models in different countries. So I would imagine from what you're describing that if you wanted, you could still be doing the exact same thing for the same company or maybe be promoted and be the boss of whoever took your place. What did you do after getting the bachelor's degree and working for the mining company? So I, I continued working for that mining company for about 10 years. And um, what happened was after I got my degree, um, I continued to work in health and safety roles. And um, decided that I'd like to progress to the sort of the next level, sort of in, on the corporate ladder. And um, there was um, a number of changes happening within the business. And one of those changes was to implement business improvement um, specialists across the business. So people that could be similar to health and safety that would kind of champion business improvement principles and practices and push them into the business. And what they were going to do was we're going to select somewhere between 15 to 20 people to work in business improvement across the iron ore business that would then be supported by a number of external consultants. So they were looking for people typically around the level I was at to volunteer for these roles um, and to get coaching and training to move into them. So me being a person who likes diversification, um, I put my hand up and uh, was successful and moved into a business improvement role where we were deploying and what's called lean management systems. And lean management systems is basically how Toyota production systems operate. So Toyota, the car company, mm-hmm. uh, which is also used in like things like Kawasaki, Suzuki, uh, Samsung, all, a lot of these big Japanese and Korean companies have this management system or total quality management. And so we were basically implementing that within the business and learning about Six Sigma as well. So I did that for um, a couple of years. That was really good. And then I got promoted into a, another role uh, where we're working across the entire business, um, you know, working on improvements to production. And so when we did that next role, the next level up, then it was kind of now I was getting more into a kind of a mix where I was working on business improvement, but lots of health and safety elements given my background. So things started to blend for me where I was becoming a health safety improvement type role. And so it would be things like how do we optimize the trends that we have that are carrying the ore back and forth? But also, how do we ensure that the drivers are not being overly fatigued or they're sticking to their hours that are prescribed by the government? And how do we kind of balance these things? But then working with people who are making improvements up the track, down the track, at the mine, at the port. And so how do you balance that? And that was really interesting. Um, so I worked on that then for a while as well. So, so yeah. So when, when I was working on in that role, um, I started to do an M- MBA. Um, master's in business administration. I was doing that part-time at a university here, a combination of face-to-face, intensive um, units as well, and online. And so, yeah, um, got the MBA and um, 
was in that job for a while. And then there was more diversification. Ben. It's, it's, <laughs> it sounds like for a, that was a big change from the high school student who was thinking about rugby. Sounds like you found maybe, oh, maybe the problem with high school is there weren't things you were interested in. And then you realized beyond high school with some life experience, it's like, wow, there's some really interesting things I'd like to learn about. Oh yeah. Heaps. Yeah. And, and, and it's probably getting worse now. So, um, around the, Around that time then as well, um, there was a lot of change. Obviously, the GFC had hit in um, 2008, so there was a lot of change in the business. So they were looking for people to move into different areas, do different projects. And I, I actually wanted to, after being working at the port, working on the infrastructure side, working on the rail side, I was like, I'd like to go and look at mining, as in the actual mine itself. So I went working on a mine operation for a while, um, doing business improvement, and um, <clears throat> I decided it would be nice to do a master's in engineering. <laughs> so I enrolled for a master's in mine engineering and I did that part-time as well through the University of New South Wales. Uh, so I got my master's in mine engineering as well. Uh, had my MBA, uh, was working in this role. And it was around 2008, 2009, where I got into actual sleep work. And this is where the kind of the trigger happened that catapulted me down a career that I've stayed on ever since then. And I'm curious because one of the things uh, that Moving to Live does is we are interested in addition to the stories, finding out about how people have moved all along. So you've got this really diverse background, a wide variety of experiences that sounds like it's a combination of blue collar, white collar. And I would imagine with mining, there may have been a fair amount of travel involved. Were you able to maintain or did you maintain some sort of level in running and other activities during this time period? Yeah, so <clears throat> probably about 2006, 2007, I got heavily back into running again. I started running like 12K races, um, half marathons, 15K runs, ending up to sort of a half marathon distance. And then um, I think around the time I was doing, I started my MBA, I decided to do a marathon. So I finished, I did my first marathon. Um I think I did 329. I was pretty happy because it was kind of a hilly course. <clears throat> so I was quite happy with that. Um, then the next year I thought, ooh, I'd like some, another challenge. And um, so sort of coming towards the end of my MBA um, with travel as well, if things weren't hard enough, I took on the mammoth task of doing my first 100K run, uh, which was a mountain ultramarathon, which at the time was called the North Face 100, which is now called the Ultra Trail Australia 100. And it's a 100k race in the Blue Mountains outside of Sydney, which I ultimately ended up doing eight times, um, eight years in a row. But yeah, so to answer your question, I traveled during the week, I trained, trained during the week, trained the weekend. Um, and basically what I did was I used a combination of any means possible. So on, on these up remote operations, if there was a track that was like sometimes I have this two kilometer loop or a three kilometer loop, I would just <clears throat> hang laps of that for an hour or so. I'll run on the treadmill using the incline to try to mimic elevation change. Um, and in lieu of that, if I was at an operation and didn't have any of those, I would use a lot of bodyweight exercises. So I would do things like in my room, set the timer, seven minutes of burpees. So see how many burpees I could do in seven minutes. And sounds easy, but you're doing burpees for seven minutes. You, your, your, your chest is heaving. Uh, rest them for three minutes and then do seven minutes of air squats. And I can tell you one thing, uh, it sounds like a very simple 14-minute workout, but my God, you are, you are in a world of hurt at the end of that. So I do a lot of that, that type of work, a lot of hit type sessions, uh, bodyweight stuff. And um, 
you know, when I was back home then on the weekends or other times well, like that's when I try and get in those long, slow distance runs or try and get um, some kind of kettlebell, barbell strength and conditioning work in as well. So movement was, movement was always there. And in, in, in conjunction to that, I was doing martial arts as well. So I was doing jiu-jitsu as well um, at any time I was home. But the, my goal was always to exercise every single day, a minimum of one hour of some type of movement. If I didn't do that, um, I was quite irate. And it's probably worth knowing, Ben, that probably most of my movement activities in my life is actually primarily for my mental health and well-being as opposed to my physical performance and physical appearance. Um, it's first of all, my movement is related to my mental health and well-being. I know I've mentioned a couple of times in the podcast, it's very rare that my mood is worse when I get back from <laughs> the trails either to run or to hike or with my dogs than before I went. And I think that's probably one of the vastly under-recognized benefits of going out and doing something like you do with the running. It's, it's a great time to think and kind of let the things that are stressing you in your real life go by the wayside. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. So we could probably kick down the path then of how I got into sleep research and, and sleep work. Yeah. Here. So you've got your, you've got, uh, actually my other question I had about the running and the movement when you're going to these, uh, mining sites and these places where maybe there's a two kilometer loop is how did most of the people look at you? Because if, if you're working as a strength coach and you're lifting when you're not working with your athletes, or if you're a physiologist in a university or a clinical setting and you're out running, nobody thinks anything differently, but it's probably a little bit unusual to see this guy who shows up and rather than going out and having beers or, or uh, recreating or watching TV, you know, he makes the choice to go run around a two-kilometer loop. Did you get some strange looks or some strange comments? Oh, for, for sure, yeah, and it's very interesting. Uh, one comment a guy said to me one night, because um, I went and had a run, had some dinner, and then actually went down and the guys were having a beer and went down to have a chat with them. One guy said to me, who was grossly overweight, he said to me as he was taking a swig of his beer, you want to kill yourself trend like that. <laughs> <laughs> so I got a lot of, I got a lot of those comments. Uh, a lot of people were perplexed by why I would want to run a marathon or a hundred kilometers. If I wasn't going to win the race, why bother? Um, for the t-shirt. For, or for the t-shirt. Yeah. Or an ultra marathon for the belt buckle. Um, so yeah, yeah, I got lots of comments like that, but to be honest with you, Ben, I, I didn't really care. Like I said to you, my first goal is for, mental health and well-being i find nothing better than at the end of the day to do some exercise some type of movement it just completely um it's the best antidepressant it's the best sort of after work beer you can have it's the best relaxant you can ever have and i find that in everything whether it be a body weight exercise whether it be in swimming a run jujitsu whatever it might be um hitting a heavy bag some sort of movement where you are sweating profusely and getting your heart rate up over a hundred for at least 20 minutes seems to be my, uh, my, you know, sort of go to antidepressant for the day or anti asshole drug at the end of the day. So, yeah. And that's something that you've, you've hit on it either by purpose or accidentally that movement is a lifestyle. It's not an activity. You just, it's like, this is what, this is part of what I do. Just like pouring a cup of coffee in the morning or, uh, brushing your teeth before you go to bed. Oh, for, yeah, Ben, for me, it's a non-negotiable. It is a non-negotiable. Like, it is exactly that. It is built into my into my day, and it has been since the age of 12 or 13. It's been always an hour a day of something, and it's a non-negotiable. Like, unless I'm really, really sick, and even then, I try to get up and just walk around the block. Um, you know, I've had injuries before where I've had, like, you know, minor surgeries, whatever it is, and the next day, you know, recovery from anesthetic or no, like, 
I'm just I'm out doing something because I have to even if it's very very slow paced um, I have to be out doing some sort of movement and also as well which we can talk about later or in another time is um, that exposure to sunlight and the benefit of that as well really helps you sleep really well you know and there's there's scientific principles behind that but it really helps you sort of um, you know wash out the, the badness for the day as well I think <laughs> yes we're talking to Dr. Ian Dunnikin he is a sleep expert he's told us his story so far up until how he got into sleep research. So he's told us about his career starting in Ireland, ending up in Australia. We're going to come back in two weeks and we're going to talk to him and find about, out about how he got into sleep research because if a master's degree wasn't enough and an MBA wasn't enough, he decided he was also going to get a PhD. So I think he's probably a man after my own heart or somebody who's like me that if he can figure out something that interests him, he's going to go out and find a way to learn more about it so that he can learn more about it. Dr. Dunnikin, I want to thank you for talking to Moving to Live. I'm looking forward in two weeks, both professionally and personally, to learning more about sleep research and your insights on this. Okay, until then, sleep well. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Moving to Live. Make sure you check out the show notes for contact information for our latest guest, as well as links about all the things we talked about. Intro and exit music is Traveling Light by Jason Shaw. You can subscribe to Moving to Live on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play, and be notified about new episode releases. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com. Connect with us on Twitter or Instagram, both underscore MOV number two LIV. Please tell your friends about Moving to Live. It's a go-to place for information for movement and exercise professionals and amateur aficionados who understand that movement is part of what makes your life complete. Until next week, keep on moving.